Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. I'm Aaron Kane. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, and public figures to get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is Peter Rubin. He's been a writer and an editor for more than a decade, and over the years he's penned cover stories for GQ, L, Details, and other magazines. Since 2011, Peter Rubin has been on the team at Wired magazine. He leads their editorial efforts on digital platforms, and he oversees coverage of culture. One of the things Peter Rubin has been writing about a lot these days is virtual reality. And recently, he completed a book about VR and human connection called Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. Rubin holds a master's degree from Columbia University, and before that, he graduated from Williams College. And well before that, Peter Rubin was born and raised here in Bloomington, Indiana. He was recently back in town to give a reading from his new book, while he was here, he joined Janae Cummings in the WFIU studios. Peter, welcome to Profiles. Thank you so much for having me. You're the author of Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. Now, between this and your position as an editor at Wired, one would think that you're a tech writer, but you aren't. You refer to yourself as a culture writer. Yeah, I mean, I'm a culture writer by trade, and I work at an outlet that is certainly informed by technology in every way, but it's really the intersection of technology and other things, how technology is informing business and security and culture, of course. And so my magazine and journalism career has always been a cultural bent. You know, I started writing at GQ, writing a lot about music, eventually transitioned at least partly into writing about games along with other things. And when a culture editor slot came open at Wired, I just couldn't believe that there was an opening there. That was always because I was based in New York and Wired existed not only clear on the other side of the country, but seemed to be, at least in my mind, so removed from the usual media circle of New York where magazine publication is so kind of densely concentrated. And so Going there not only was something I was incredibly excited to do, but it also gave me that preconception to fight against. You know, when people find out that I'm at Wired, it's, oh, you're a tech guy. Certainly, I've learned more about it. In like my... at some level, you've got to be a tech guy. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm conversant in the weird parlance of it now, and I never thought I'd be able to tell you what Series A funding is or know what Sand Hill Road is. And so I've absorbed some of that startup speak, but I'm still a culture reporter and a culture editor and writer. And so even for something like virtual reality, when that came along, I was immediately interested in it as a cultural mover rather than just a tech one. When you were talking to people about this from the cultural standpoint, did they get it? I mean, had they thought about it in that way or were they really focused on it as a basic technology and what it could do? I kind of I didn't think about it this way. But looking back, I certainly kind of Trojan horsed it in as a tech thing, because in 2012, 2013, when the technology first came back around and it seemed like it was going to be attainable for the first time, there had been this massive wave of interest in VR in the late 80s and 90s and was in movies and TV and sci-fi and people were working on it and never really panned out. And Wired throughout its 20-year history up to that point had heralded the arrival of VR a bunch of times. So 
I was aware that there would be probably some resistance. So when I came back from seeing it for the first time and I went to a pitch meeting and I was like, I know what you're going to say, but believe me, they figured out VR. So we began covering it as a technological innovation, as a solution to all these problems that had always stood Mm -hmm. in its way. But very early on, as people started playing with it and creating culture with it, and outside of games, which was what everybody assumed it would be in the beginning, I was able to not just be there by virtue of covering it for Wired and getting to see the kind of proliferation of these experiences, but to begin to think of these many disparate things as forming some sort of constellation and starting to think about VR's effect a little more systemically, which is kind of what became the guiding principle for how I tried to cover VR. I mean, we have so many incredible colleagues that write about any number of things, and a lot of them write about VR. I have one coworker who concentrates pretty intensely on VR and filmmaking, and another person who covers artificial intelligence and what that means for VR. And I kind of hang back, and I kind of try to just knit a bunch of different things together. There are enough of us that I feel like the mosaic is kind of covered, but as soon as I figured out what I thought was going to be happening with this, As an editor, I have the rare luxury of kind of being able to write when I want to or about what I want to. So rather than being assigned something, if I see something, I'll say, I'm going to, I think that's one I want to do. So it's enjoying that privilege, I guess. I think a lot of people in our audience, they know what virtual reality is in some way. And I think whatever idea they have about it is probably informed by very specific cultural touch points. Like I'm a 90s kid. I saw VR in terrible movies like Johnny Mnemonic and uh, The 13th Floor, which I think I might be the only fan of The 13th Uh, Floor. You're talking to one right now. I saw it in a dollar theater in Hell's Kitchen when it came out. And I was like, this is what Craig Bierko's doing? And I don't think he's done anything since. But also maybe the holodeck and Star Trek Next Generation. For those who haven't seen it or aren't familiar with those references, can you give us a 30,000-foot view? So VR, as we've always thought about it and certainly think about it right now, You are putting on what some people call goggles, some people call a headset. It's basically a head-mounted display, and it shuts out your view. It's occlusive. And inside what you see is a three-dimensional display or the illusion of three dimensions because it's twin images kind of being presented to your eyes. But what's different about it and other 3D things that we've had in our past, like the Viewmaster or stereoscopes or 3D movies, is you are contained completely within whatever virtual environment you are placed in. So that means if you're sitting in a chair with a headset on and you're looking at something, if you turn all the way around in your chair, you're going to just see what is behind you in that virtual environment. When someone puts a headset on for the first time, they'll immediately say, almost every time, they'll say, oh my God, it's so real. And then you tell them to turn around in their chair and that's the first real jaw drop moment. Because we're used to seeing things that are immersive on a screen, on a rectangle. But virtual reality effectively puts you through that frame and into whatever the world actually is. So that's the first incredible departure from any sort of screen-based visual display that we've seen. The other thing that makes it a little different is that there's a phenomenon called presence, which is what I kind of hint at in the title of the book, Future Presence, and that is that your brain clicks over to really believing you're there. Meaning you're not going to not know you're wearing a headset, 
but your brain is going to accept the laws of the virtual environment as being the real ones, and so your body will react. You'll have instinctual reactions that are in keeping with the virtual world and not the real world environment that you're sitting in. So if you put on a headset and you're standing on the edge of a building, in the real world, you're standing up. And someone in the real room with you says, take a step forward. You'll know that you're standing on carpet. You're not standing on the edge of a building. And you'll know somewhere in your rational brain that you can move your foot, take a step forward, and, and you're not going to plummet. But when you lift up your foot, your reptilian brain kicks in. It'll be so, so difficult to actually take that step forward. And when you're shifting your weight onto that other foot, there's this thing in the back of your mind, this what if. Like, you know rationally that you're going to land on carpet, but there's this what if I don't. And you're, you really will, your pulse will quicken. And you'll have this moment of almost a free fall sensation just for that instant that you're stepping forward. And so virtual reality contains you in a three-dimensional, 360-degree environment, and you really subconsciously believe that you're there. So I think for a lot of people, they hear this and think, oh, well, this is just about video games. What is it about VR that goes beyond that video game experience, or should it? Presence certainly leads to incredible games because things like the holodeck, the Star Trek Next Generation idea, sci-fi movies like Johnny Mnemonic and Lawnmower Man, and even early virtual reality products that were in arcades back in the 90s, something called virtuality. The promise was to put you inside a game. So it's more immersive than any game has been. However, the thing that makes it more immersive than any game has been, and that is putting you inside the environment and leveraging presence, is the same thing that changes your relationship with other people inside VR. So games are great, but presence also leads to incredible applications for therapy and psychological benefit, for social benefit, for social anxiety, because you believe you're in there and another person can be in there with you, it unlocks these incredible social dynamics that we've never seen before outside of real life. We've connected with each other for 25 years via the internet. And so we're all well aware of text messaging and chat rooms and Skype calls and FaceTime. But Every one of those, in one way or another, is a mediated experience. You are trading just words with another person, or you are kind of looking at them on the screen, but you're not really making eye contact because you're looking at their face, not oh, at like the camera. Oh, like FaceTime, right. Right. There's that weird alienation thing that happens. Virtual reality puts two people in a space and brings them together. So you are making eye contact with another person. And when you are embodied in virtual reality, and that's the term for just kind of inhabiting an avatar. You look down, you see your body, you see your hands, you move your hands, and you move your head because the headset that you're wearing and the hand controllers that you're holding are tracked. I'm a pretty gesticulative person when I talk. And if we were in VR together, you would really know it was me because my hands would be moving and my head would be moving. I would have the exact same mannerisms. And you'd be hearing my voice in real time and seeing an avatar that looked as little or as much like me as I would want to create, depending on the confines of that particular platform. So the memories that you have of sharing an experience with somebody else in VR are indistinguishable from that experience being a real one that you shared with them, not a virtual one. How does that happen? 
there's long been this idea of something called laboratory memory, meaning that if you're shown photographs of something, you might perform well on a memory test. But your memory of that stuff has always been thought of as intrinsically weaker a memory than something that's autobiographical. For a while, there was this assumption that that would hold true for VR as well. And then about a year and a half ago, some researchers in Germany thought, well, this doesn't seem right. Let's actually put this to the test. So they took a group of volunteers and they showed them footage of a motorcycle ride through the country that was captured with two GoPro cameras. You could fuse the two views together and make it 3D. So people could then watch the footage taken from the point of view of the motorcycle rider Half of them saw it on a big screen TV directly in front of them, and half of them watched it in a headset. And those who watched it in a headset also kept their hands on a pair of motorcycle handlebars that had been mounted to the table in front of them just to kind of add to the immersion. And then after that, the researchers showed everybody a series of images of the German countryside. And they said, was this from the footage that you saw or is it just another image of the German countryside? People who had experienced it in VR rather than on the TV outperformed the people who had seen it on the TV. That was completely expected. What wasn't expected was that on average, the people who had seen it in VR took a tiny bit longer to answer on average. Because they weren't sure. No, because they were retrieving the memory from the part of the brain that stores autobiographical memory. It's a participation memory. It's not an observation-based memory. So their memory was actually of having done it. And so we've seen that play out anecdotally when people can coexist together in a 360-degree photo environment or somewhere computer-generated and incredibly fantastic. When you leave and someone asks, who were you talking to and where were you? You would say who you're talking to, but you would describe it as having been in the you know, oh, we were in Alaska. Oh, we were on the surface of Mars. Oh, we were at a panda refuge in China. Whatever's happening outside the headset has no bearing on your memory at all. Sure, on some level, you would say, oh, I was sitting in a room. But the memories that we've always had of stories that we've consumed, movies, TV shows, what is part and parcel of that memory is the sense memories. And those are sitting in a movie theater chair, the smell of popcorn. And those don't come into VR, at least not yet. You can't simulate mm-hmm. smell. You can't simulate taste. But every other sense memory that you have is consistent with the virtual environment, not the real world one. And so your memory is having done the virtual thing. Being in the virtual space, our interactions in there because of presence are indistinguishable from having been with the real person. And the obvious question to ask here is, well, they don't look exactly like them, so why would you think of them? Right. But the brain does an incredible amount to kind of fill in gaps. One great example of this is the Oculus Rift was one of the first consumer headsets to come out in 2016. And the orientation experience that they gave people had a suite of these kind of very short things that you could do in VR. And one of them, a scene would come up and you'd be looking into a mirror. And looking back at you at the very beginning was just a red balloon. And if you moved your head, the red balloon would move exactly consistently with what your reflection would be doing. And then that red balloon would turn into a golden mask or a symbol of a sun. And each time it would move exactly like your head was moving. You turn your head to the side and look out of the corner of your eye and it would do the same thing. And with such immediacy, you can't move your head fast enough to make the reflection move differently. Right. And so 
you know that's you. Even though there's no real reflection, even though it's something that looks nothing like you, even if there's something that doesn't have any facial features, we are able to imbue another object with consciousness because of the realism with which it reflects our real movement. That's what makes our head and our hands move with such unerring accuracy. There have been studies done that they can cover a person with those motion tracking balls. People can recognize people they know just by one on each arm, one on each hand, and one on the head. Just by the way this assemblage of unconnected spheres is moving, you know a person because you know how they move. And so by bringing that into virtual reality, it's a real interaction. And their face doesn't need to be there. Their face doesn't need to be there. Certainly, it helps if there's a face sure. there. And so all the social VR applications that people are devising hinge on an avatar, hinge on a representation of you. And it can look like you or it can look like an anime character if you wanted to. There are some that people like import these 3D models of cartoon characters or Hank Hill from King of the Hill. You can be anyone you want to depending on the platform. But by and large, it will give you the tools to create someone who looks somewhat like you. And if it looks something like the person that you know, and the voice is the persons that you know, and they're moving like the person that you know, then when you leave, your memory is, oh, I was really with them. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Peter Rubin author of Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. He's speaking with Janae Cummings. Donning a headset and dropping into this virtual world, this has been in the realm of science fiction, of course, for 30 years. But VR technologies have been around for 50, at least, I think. How did we get here? What are the origins? And how did we get to this point? Well, it has been just about 50 years exactly in a weird way. We had these stereoscopes at the end of the 19th century that became a big fad. You'd have twin images and you'd look through lenses at them and they'd merge into a single 3D image. Viewmasters work much the same way. And then in, I think, the 20s, there was a science fiction story that imagined these magical glasses that you could put on and the glasses would put you somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And so people started imagining this idea very early, but there was no computers, no nothing. In the 1960s, Ivan Sutherland created the first head-mounted display. And it was so big, it had to be suspended from the ceiling. And so it was called the sort of Damocles because it kind of hung down over you. And you'd put your face up to these goggles and you'd look around the room and it would overlay just like a cube, something incredibly simple. But this was the first HMD, the first head-mounted display. And then that kind of transitioned into flight simulator technology. And so the Air Force and NASA were creating these giant helmets that were called super cockpit. And basically it gave you the view of whatever was outside the plane and all the metrics and dials and data that you would need overlaid onto that. So there were these military and aeronautic applications. And then in the 1980s, a company came along called VPL, and it was based in... Silicon Valley, and didn't have a name yet. I mean, people called it different things, but there was a guy named Jaron Lanier who said, let's call this virtual reality. Virtual reality had existed Mm -hmm. as a phrase that was coined by a French playwright and writer named Artaud. So he said, well, that's what this is. This is virtual reality. And so that is in the late 80s when that first became the term that we used for this thing. And then 
because people were so excited about this, in no small part because Jaron Lanier was such a captivating live speaker and would kind of evangelize for the promises of this amazing thing, even though like what you could really do with it was kind of janky and it was incredibly expensive and kind of uncomfortable and what it delivered was on par with like an Atari 2600 for graphics, maybe a little bit more because it was actually 3D. And so then you had science fiction books. Mm -hmm. Neil Stevenson's Snow Crash is a huge one. And like you said, movies like Lawnmower Man and Johnny Mnemonic, it got into the massest of the mass culture. There was an episode of Murder, She Wrote. I've seen it. There was an episode of Mad About You. (laughs) VR was just like, it was something that people recognized because this crazy looking headset would let you do anything inside it. But so expensive and so kind of bad that it disappeared. So... People were still working with it in academia and in labs. What happened in the meantime was this thing called the smartphone. Because of the smartphone, all of a sudden, we were making high-definition screens that were smaller than we ever did. We were putting these motion sensors into our phones that could track exactly how it moved. So, like, if your screen goes from landscape to portrait because you move it, it's because of a motion sensor. And so this was happening at a lab in USC. And then also there was this homeschooled kid in Long Beach who was super captivated by VR and wormed his way into getting an internship at this lab in USC. Kind of just said, it's all here. He bought a bunch of old VR headsets and he tore them apart and he would Frankenstein different things together. And eventually he came up with this thing that used kind of cheap magnifying lenses and the display that was ripped from something that was somewhere between a phone and a laptop and an off-the-shelf motion sensor that was like two bucks and duct-taped it all up and put a ski mask strap on it. And he was posting on these forums. This kid was named Palmer Lucky. And then this luminary of the video game world named John Carmack, he had been part of a company that created Doom and Wolfenstein and Mm -hmm. these kind of incredible games. He reached out to this kid, Palmer Lucky. He said, I'm going to this video game trade show in 2012 can I bring one of those prototypes? I think I want to hack it to get my game Doom running on it. So he brought it to E3 in 2012, didn't tell anyone, and just showed people this thing. And I was at E3 that year, but I didn't find out about it until afterwards. You just start hearing these whispers like, John Carmack brought a VR headset to this thing. It came back because of gaming, and it came back because of a video game developer and a kid who was, I guess, 19 at the time, who just wanted to create the best video game experience that he could. Not long after that, people who had been working with VR continuously and were using it for journalism and Mm -hmm. filmmaking, all of this stuff started to coalesce. And so between 2012 and 2014, there was this kind of incredible period of experimentation. Then 2014, the company that this kid Palmer Lucky had founded, which was now called Oculus, Facebook bought Oculus for between 2 and $3 billion. And Mark Zuckerberg at the time said... I think this is going to be the most social computing platform we've ever seen. This is going to bring people together. And since then, you've seen this kind of second wave of experimentation that's gotten outside of gaming and started getting into bringing people together. And that's the stuff that has really captivated my interest because of the feelings that you have when you're in there with someone else are remarkable because there's no distraction inside. Phone's not in there, not constantly beeping. You're not getting notifications. If you're in there with someone else or other people, you're having this quality time of a sort that everybody professes to want to have together, but we never do. So it's this really remarkable, private, intimate 
collection of moments. And we're seeing an incredible amount of growth in that space in particular. And that's what really informed the book. And the book argues, of course, as we've been discussing, that virtual reality will change human connection. But we have this well-known paradox that we're living in a world that's never been more connected. We're always on our phone. We're playing games, searching, browsing, whatever we're up to. But we've never felt more isolated. We've never felt more alone. And so... I wonder if there is some skepticism when Facebook buys Oculus and tells us that we're never going to be more connected when they are, I think, kind of a linchpin of us feeling very unconnected in a lot of ways. How is this not going to be more of the same? It's a great question. And that was certainly one of the things that rose to the surface immediately when Facebook bought Oculus. The first cry you heard was, I don't want Facebook in VR. What they've done up to now has not been anything like that. But Facebook's move in social VR has been really different from everybody else's. The thing that every other social VR platform does is you'll go somewhere and you'll have things to do. And those things that you do become a point of connection to meet people and to form relationships. Those could be things like games, like laser tag or paintball. They could be watching movies together. They could be just hanging out in a virtual space and playing charades or whatever it is. What unites everything is that you are going in and you're meeting people that you don't know. And virtual reality provides this kind of unique substrate for interactions to take place in. Facebook said, we know what you like. We know who you know. We've got photos of you. So Facebook launched its first social VR thing, and it was something called Spaces. And it started with you could only connect with people you already knew. What you could do together was extremely limited. You could basically stand around a table, like draw things and give them to each other or whatever it is. But you could choose your environment. And Facebook's philosophy was, we want to give you quality time with the people that you already have a connection with. And certainly, it's a more visceral type of connection than Facebook Messenger. And in fact, they've done some really interesting things to tunnel between VR and the real life. I can go into Facebook spaces. I can make a video messenger call. And I can make it to my wife, who's in the next room on her phone. And she'll get a messenger request. And she'll answer it. And when I'm in VR, what I see is a video screen suspended in midair with a live video feed of my wife. That's a lot like any Skype or FaceTime thing. What she sees on her phone is my avatar talking to her, moving my hands like I move, moving around. And so we both leave with the sense that we've been talking, like really talking to the other person. In fact, her probably more than me because she was held within... It was just like her face in a rectangle. She saw me and how I was moving and where I was. And so Facebook has gone about it completely different philosophically. To get back to the idea that how do we stop VR from being more of the same and us feeling more isolated than ever before, the reason we tend to feel isolated is because we are surrounded by people in real life or we're looking at what other people are doing or telling us that they've done. So you've got stuff like FOMO, fear of missing out. And there is a sense that you're kind of connecting with another person's life, but it doesn't feel real. Even, like I said, something like FaceTime can feel strange because you are never looking each other in the eye. It's physically impossible to do. You can stare at the camera on your phone or you can look at their face. But if you're looking at their face on your phone, on their end, they see your eyes looking somewhere else. And so 
there's always a little bit of detachment and disruption of that moment. And when you're in there in VR with somebody else, not only is it not isolated because you're there with other people, but it is completely without all these other simulations of these other people's lives. You're not seeing a news feed. You're with them. You're doing things with them. And because you are embodied as an avatar, you're really doing the things you're doing. Something as pedestrian as playing Pictionary or just standing around talking, there's nothing else happening around you. Your phone might buzz, but your phone isn't in VR with you. If it's in your pocket, you might feel it. But in order to even figure out what's going on in your phone, you'd have to leave the virtual world entirely. And so there is this kind of wonderful moment that we're in that you're not plagued by notifications every second. All the things that make our relationship with our phones so addictive and toxic, that sort of app design doesn't exist in VR. The way people make you robotically recheck Facebook and Twitter and see what's new, stuff just falls away. And so we don't feel as beholden to something happening without us. Because mm -hmm. that's why we check our phones, what's happening without me. That's really what it all comes down to. Peter Rubin, in conversation with Janae Cummings. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. We talked a little bit about addiction to our phones and to the internet and to learning what's new. I think the last 15 years have treated us to a, like a lot of stories about internet addiction and even addiction to things like World of Warcraft and those kind of video games. And so I'm wondering, uh, particularly with the horror stories you hear about people who all but lose their lives to these games, I wonder if the immersive nature impacts us and we're less likely to leave this environment. With any new technology, there's always a fear that people are going to lose themselves inside to escape what's going on outside. And... Those fears are certainly valid with any technology, and we've seen them happen, like you said, with games and internet culture at large. VR is missing a couple of crucial things right now that would, because the fear is that it will replace life. That's what people ask me all, like, it's better than life. The bit that's missing is what you see and what you hear is kind of perfect. The audio is spatialized in 360 degrees, and what that means is, if someone leans close to you, their voice sounds like they're leaning close to you in VR. And whatever direction they are, walking behind you, it's the audio and the visuals are in perfect keeping with how they would be in real life. Our physical feedback, what's called haptic feedback, we're kind of fumbling towards it in baby steps. We can feel stuff with our hands. Our brain can fill in gaps. So you can like fist bump with people and high five with people, but there's no real touch, at least not like the feel of someone's skin or warmth or things like that. People are certainly working on it, but it's nowhere near being available at a mass level. And you don't have smell or taste at all. And so you're missing these crucial sense memory, like Proust's Madeleine, this thing that took him back to being a child was the taste of this cookie. VR doesn't have that. It doesn't have anything like that. So you remember the things that you see and heard and felt, and you certainly remember the things you felt emotionally. But between the lack of these other senses and the inability to wear it for hours on end, you just don't want to. 
It's not that good yet. It's not indistinguishable from real life. And there are issues with things like eye strain and the limitations of focusing a 3D environment that's presented to you on a single plane has these kind of technological obstacles. And certainly displays are getting better and there are things like that. But the thing that's kind of coming towards us at the same time, though a little bit behind VR, is what's called augmented or mixed reality. Mm -hmm. And where VR puts you inside a virtual environment and everything is artificial, AR or MR bring virtual objects into your real world surroundings. These two technologies are slowly converging. So we are seeing the first hint of devices being worked on. They're nowhere near ready yet, but devices being worked on that will give you both things. You can kind of toggle between. So what's more than likely going to happen is if you have some sort of unobtrusive wearable device that looks like a pair of sport glasses, you're not going to be in VR all the time. Mm -hmm. There's no real point to being in VR all the time. You may have this thing on because you can see your world and you it's can... It's kind of like a Google Glass-esque Yeah. Thing. Google Glass was a very early version of that. And certainly there was the stigma to being a glass hole and wearing this $1,500 thing that would basically give you a calendar notification on your face. But what's happened since then is these 3D virtual objects that you can share with another person and you can manipulate them. So there are all these kind of engineering and science and much like... VR poses this transformative potential for those. So does AR. And so what is going to probably emerge is that we're going to use AR and MR kind of in our day-to-day public life. And then when you go home and you want to have a little time to lose yourself in a movie, have those escapist moments like people play games, you'll use VR for that because it's more immersive. That doesn't mean that we're not going to see people fall into... VR the way they fell into World of Warcraft or other things. And you're always going to see a sub, 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 subset of people who find it difficult to draw those boundaries. I think one thing that's very different about VR and these other technologies is if you're in there with another person and you're having a real experience with another person, despite if the surroundings are real or not, I would argue that that's not intrinsically worse than having spent quality time with that person outside of a headset. It's still connecting us to other people in a very real way. It's just doing it in a form that we're not used to yet. I don't think we all need to bow down before the idea of VR as a panacea for everything. And there's certainly some dark timeline things that could happen, privacy and fraud and harassment and toxic behavior and all these other things. But the way we thought about people losing themselves in video games, even multiplayer games, or the way we worry about people losing themselves to social media or internet culture, these are all mediated things. These aren't real moments. There's a rectangle between you and the other person, right. and there's not anymore with VR. Right. Perhaps this is an appropriate segue. I'm not quite sure. But you devote Chapter 9 of Future Presence to the intersection of virtual reality and our sex lives, specifically porn. Specifically porn. Um, And I think it's no secret that the adult film industry in particular is an early technological adopter and its use drives lots and lots of innovation. But a claim you make in the book is that the use of VR and porn can improve intimacy and bring couples closer together. So I'm wondering first how you define intimacy. There's a number of different ways that you can define intimacy, and I do so throughout the book. There's intimacy that you can have with a fictional character in a story. There's intimacy you can have with other real people. With the adult 
film industry, there are kind of two things that are happening. One is that there's been so much ink spilled for the past 10, 15, 20 years on what internet porn did to a generation of young people, young men probably more. And some of that is not just because it's free and it's instant access and you can see anything you want, but because also pornography has changed over those years. When the internet happened and piracy hit porn, porn reacted by, I don't want to call it a race to the bottom, but things got more extreme than they ever had been. If you look at something that was made in the 70s or the 80s or the 90s or the aughts, you would know. Yeah. And things got, I mean, there are things that are out there that it's bananas, sometimes literally. The hand-wringing that's done about what's happening to young people because of internet porn is desensitization. Mm -hmm. And certainly some of that comes from the fact that you're watching it through a screen, right? So you get numb to it, whatever the arguments are. You're seeing stuff happen to other people, things that you would never do or want done to you in your real life. You're just seeing these things happen You put someone in a VR headset and all of a sudden they're kind of implicated. They're kind of conscripted into what's happening. So whether you're there as a voyeur or whether you're there with the illusion of being a participant, a lot of times what has been made is quote unquote conventional male-female porn. Well, actually any kind of gender or sexual pairing, one person will be kind of behind a VR camera rig. And so when you put on the headset, you are from the point of view of the person who, who, like, you look down and you see your body. And so there's this illusion of participation. Not only that, but quick cuts and this kind of dizzying parade of shot, 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 you can't have that in VR. So you have this uninterrupted experience. It's much more like an actual sexual encounter from beginning to end. There might be, like, a dissolve from one part of the scene to the other, but you're really with this other person. And not only that, but because you're there and you're in the body or just in the room with other people, what people ended up wanting and what companies ended up making is about the hallmarks of intimacy that VR makes possible. Eye contact, proximity, closeness, whispering. There's almost something quaint about the porn that's being made in VR. From the point of view of a man having sex with a woman, you'll look down and you see like hips up. And it's more about how a person is reacting to you, the sounds that you're hearing, the eye contact, just looking at each other. It's so unlike what we thought of as porn that... It's oddly sensual. It is oddly sensual. There's always been this idea of companies that make, quote, porn for women, and it's always concentrated on the sensuality. And what you're seeing is male viewers are plugging into that energy as well. So that's one way that it can increase intimacy in porn. For one, it's connecting you to another person, which is not something that porn is exactly specialized in. You know, there's still going to be an element of fantasy to it, and you can indulge things that maybe your real-life partner wouldn't want to, and so there's that element of fantasy and escape. As far as increasing intimacy for a real-life couple, that's, of course dependent on the other person kind of being into the idea, right? Because there's this other attendant conversation, and that is, does this constitute infidelity? Does your desire for another person constitute infidelity? When that's happening in a headset and because of presence, you really feel like you're there with that other person, 
that raises those stakes considerably. And so we're just beginning to see how couples are grappling with that. There's a guy that I interviewed a couple of times. He's in the book. He's in his 50s. He had never tried VR before. He ended up getting a headset and looking for stuff to do, found out that VR porn existed. He was never into porn. He got super into VR porn and then really wanted to share it with his wife because his using VR porn had made him feel more connected to her in their time together. He thought that by using VR porn, he would not be interested in his wife anymore Mm. because he had this conventional perfection. But what he found was he was connecting better with his wife in their real sex life. And so he really wanted to share this with her, and so he did. And it didn't go well at all. She was not into it. She said, that's an adultery rehearsal machine, basically. Well, it's creating memory. It's creating real memories of being with other people. And at first he resisted, but then he said, you know what? She was right. I was fooling myself. So he has stopped with VR porn. But in the meantime, he had rekindled the sexual relationship with this woman that he had been with for decades. And he credits VR porn with that, even though it didn't stay a part of their relationship. He was so much more connected to her by the time that his usage of it was seen as a problem. He was like, that's fine. I'm with you. And, And, you know, that's not the only way things can go, right? We will see people who prefer VR porn to real sex, I'm sure. And certainly as haptic feedback gets better, and you get into the sci-fi realms of putting on a bodysuit and being able to stimulate just about anything and simulate warmth of skin and different textures and moisture. You know, this is a long way off, but certainly you can see that dark timeline happening. So we're a long way away. And what's good about being a long way away from these things that we can see coming at us is that we can try to avoid them happening. True. yeah. Because that's one of the things with harassment and toxic behavior. We know what the Internet did. Right. We know how terrible that is. Any sort of abuse or bullying or sexual harassment is so much more visceral and so much worse when it's embodied. And you have personal space that can be violated. Right. How can you stop someone from touching you in this space or from saying horrible things to you or for running a scam on you? Well, the scam stuff, thankfully, has not happened at all yet. We've seen sexual harassment and we've seen bullying and we've seen abuse. The first thing that emerged was that the people that are creating these platforms started building in user empowerment tools. And a lot of times that means when you go in somewhere, you default to having what's called a personal space bubble. If someone comes inside that and you don't know them, they will fade away. They will cease to exist to you. Imagine like muting someone on Instagram or Twitter, but it's embodied. But that may help you. But if you are being harassed in the moment and you have to fumble with a menu to like ban someone or, or make them disappear. You don't want the burden to be on the abusee. You want to create design decisions that disincentivize bad behavior, that incentivize good behavior. So that's the other thing that's happening is the people that are making these social platforms are trying to build them in a way that makes for a strong self-policing social contract community. But there's another thing too, which is It's very easy to lob a slur or an insult or an image at someone because you're pressing a few buttons and sending it to them. A bored kid can be a terrible person online. It takes a real dyed-in-the-wool sociopath to be able to do this stuff a lot in VR. It's just harder to do. And so my hope is that that 
stems it as well. But mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're at the very beginning of this thing, and there are a lot of ways it could go. But certainly, there's going to be some sort of regulatory approach that's needed because yeah. at some point, there's going to be a court case of does this constitute assault? A body did it to a body. Yeah. Right? We are going to see things happening that are utterly without precedent. And we are going to be patching together some sort of system, whether it's statutory or regulatory or what have you, to cope with this. So it's not going to be solved from the beginning. It's going to be cat and mouse. There's going to be bad actors that are seeking to get around stuff and then people trying to find a way to stem that behavior. But because the book comes down on the positive side of VR's potential, a lot of people assume I'm this kind of unwavering techno-optimist, which is a weird position to be in these days, right? Because everyone is kind of, well, you know, tech hasn't been that great. Social media hasn't been that great. Connection through the internet has not been that yeah. great. And I love talking about the bad stuff that can happen because that's how you get out in front of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that I come down on the side of good because I like to think that people are, as an aggregate, more good than they are bad. And if we are having these conversations about what could go wrong before they're going wrong, at a mass level in these early days of fewer users, that's when we have to talk about this stuff. You're listening to Profiles from WFIU. Our guest is Peter Rubin, Bloomington native and an editor at Wired Magazine. He's speaking with Janae Cummings. We talked earlier about the positive impacts VR could have on things like healthcare and therapy. What are those ways outside of the social sphere? How do people benefit? Well, a lot of them overlap with the social sphere. On the healthcare side, there's some very non-social ways that it can help, and that is the ability to create visualizations of things that are otherwise impossible. And not just on a screen, but things that you can really interact with and go inside. You could design a body part and walk inside it and it's recreated at like sub-millimeter detail. And so a couple years ago, there was a pediatric surgeon in Miami who had to do this tricky cardiac procedure on an infant. One chance to get it right. And so they reconstructed the baby's heart from scans and he rehearsed and he attributed his success with the procedure to having been able to do that in VR. On the psychological therapeutic side, it really does overlap with the social benefits of presence, by which I mean VR can be used for phobia immersion in ways that are really remarkable. And for PTSD, for post-traumatic stress disorder, Mm -hmm. you can revisit a situation or an environment that is the site of that original trauma, and you can do it with someone else who brings you through it, helps you see that it's safe, and you can begin to recontextualize these places that you would never go in real life again. And so there's a lot of hope for PTSD in VR. And in fact, it's being used a lot with soldiers, a lot of military veterans with PTSD. That's one of the best things for it. You can bring someone to the site of an IED detonation or whatever it is, and you can bring them to that place without the bad thing happening. That's key. And then for kind of a generalized social anxiety, even in a non-structured therapeutic way, something really interesting is happening with the way that relationships evolve in VR. Until the internet happened, there was like one way to get to know someone, right? You'd meet someone in real life and you'd get to know them. And sometimes you'd connect with someone, you know, and you'd have great chemistry with them. But by and large, it was through time. 
you'd get comfortable around someone, you knew what they looked like immediately, but you'd get to know their interior kind of slowly. Yeah. And that was the hallmark of intimacy. And then the internet happened and you could be anyone you wanted because you were anonymous. You saw these things happen in social gathering spaces like chat rooms or even World of Warcraft. People would get to the point of disclosure and unburdening themselves to other people and vulnerability really quickly. Mm -hmm. They would stoke these intense relationships with people that they hadn't met. And when they met in real life, it could go well, but oftentimes you would see the other person and you'd be like, that's not who I thought you were. Not only appearance, but in personality as well. Because any text-based communications platform like the internet, you're curating everything mm -hmm. you say. You can be as witty as you've always wished you were. There's no more esprit de scalier. Like, you have the time to come up with the perfect rejoinder in any situation. You can be hilarious and cool and whatever. That doesn't change who you are in real life. And it doesn't maybe change the fact that you're a little more awkward in real life. So you would get to the point of disclosure very quickly, but then when you met, there would be this disconnect. And VR does something that is this weird medium of the two where you go into a social VR space and you may have anxiety about it. You may be awkward. But the difference is when you're in VR, your interior has no choice but to come out. Your there's head no editing. There's no editing. You're in real time. You're speaking with your voice. Your nonverbal mannerisms are coming out. You are emboldened by virtue of having that degree of anonymity and that degree of what you tell yourself is detachment and also the fact that, like, if I walk into this, quote, bar or this party, if I was doing it in real life and I felt weird about being there and I ran out, I wouldn't go back in there. But I can just take the headset off. And a day later, you might find that you want to try it again. So people are more likely to do things a second time. Their real personality comes out while having the comfort of a degree of detachment and anonymity. So what you're finding is that people are not only overcoming their shyness and overcoming their anxiety, but they're connecting as the people they actually are, not the persona that they wish they could be. And so people will meet in real life after having become friends in VR, and it's just like being with the person. Because you know how they move. You know how they move their hands when they're answering a question or whatever it is. And so because of presence, it's really leading to this kind of third track of how relationships evolve that's somehow faster and more sincere, but it's not artificially fast. Mm -hmm. You really get to know someone, and yeah. you get to know someone in kind of a comfortable way. I'm curious, I guess, about the world at large. A little less than 4 billion people are connected to the Internet. I think it's around 51% of the population kind of around the world. How do we ensure, I think, that VR becomes a technology that's not just for the privileged? Because it seems that this is something that is very expensive. Even when you save a little for Christmas, it's very cost prohibitive to participate in this kind of thing. How do we have this widespread adoption to ensure that we can have these experiences across the board? You know, it's a very real concern. Up until now, VR has been available in one of two ways. You had something that had to connect to a high-powered PC or a game console, so you were looking at not just the price of a headset, which was in the hundreds of dollars, but it had to connect to something that was anywhere from 400 to $1,500. I mean, that leads to a huge digital divide. And then on the casual side, you could put your phone in something, but it wasn't a very good experience. But much like we saw smartphones go from being a tool 
of the privileged and the wealthy to not that everybody has them, but it is certainly we've seen the smartphone go from a luxury to almost a utility. And we're going to see a similar thing happen with VR. Just recently, we saw the birth of a new category of headset, and it's called a standalone headset. And it's all self-contained. It's all there. You don't drop a phone into it. You don't connect it to anything. It's internet connected. You turn it on and you put it on your face and you're in VR. And it's an app store ecosystem, much like a phone. Facebook and Oculus rolled theirs out and it was $200. And there are more coming out throughout 2018 that are more expensive. But you are seeing the birth of this thing that is only going to become a more diverse category, much like we saw smartphones become something that is not an economic hardship. I think you're going to see that with VR as well. Can you talk to us a little bit about the development over the next couple of years, not just in the next couple of years, but maybe the next decade? Like, What are you excited about? What should we be looking forward to? I think standalone headsets are going to be the thing that tip VR certainly into mass adoption or something more approximating mass adoption. And what we are going to be able to do in those headsets or what those headsets are going to be able to do is going to continue to grow. So over the next year or two, we're going to see a couple of really interesting things. One is you're going to see gaze tracking and eye tracking come into headsets via these sensors around the lenses that look at your eyes. And that's important for a few reasons. One is that it leads to more naturalistic interactions because we have eye contact in VR, but it's kind of simulated. If two headsets are looking at each other, it's going to say, well, they're looking at each other until so your eyes are going to lock. Your eyes are really going to be able to move around in VR, and you'll see someone else's eyes move around in VR. So that's going to be good for social interactions, but also eye tracking is going to be great for things like making more powerful experiences that don't tax the hardware quite so much because all you really need to do is render something at the best quality only where your eyes are focused. That's going to lead to stronger experiences on cheaper devices. However, being able to see where a person is looking, and not only that, but the thing after gaze tracking, which is going to be real-time facial expression mapping, that's the kind of data treasure trove that every advertiser wants. Everyone who makes eye tracking, everyone who makes a headset, every vendor is already putting their guidelines in place for saying this is like... And protecting that data. And protecting that data. It's not being stored on the device. It's not being sent anywhere. If you want to opt in and have your data collected for analytics and to help make it better, you can do that. But after what happened with Facebook and Cambridge Analytica, everyone wants to avoid the appearance of doing something that's not kosher with what your eyes are doing is going to lead to some really interesting data and privacy conversations. So eye tracking, facial expressions coming in, and avatars that become much more lifelike. Oculus is just in May, they showed some footage of a prototype that has incredibly lifelike digital reconstructions of faces, including eyes. So like you're with someone, there's no headsets, but you're really your eyes, your face is moving as though you're really talking. And it really gets around the thing that's always been in our way, which is this thing called the uncanny valley, that if something looks too realistic but not quite, we're totally revolted by it. The other thing that's happening is the rise of these mixed reality and augmented reality wearables. Um, Magic Leap uh, is the secretive Florida company that has done some really incredible things, and they're sending their first device to developers in 2018. So there's going to be a retail release probably in 2019. So you're going to start seeing 
consumer devices, and they're going to go the exact same way VR went. They're going to be really expensive, and a privileged few are going to have them, but over time, they're going to become cheaper. And then over more time, those two technologies are going to converge. The thing after that, over the next five to 10 years, is you're going to see haptics get better. So you're going to see what we're able to physically feel and get feedback for is going to get better and deeper and certainly more immersive. And so what that leads to in, say, 10 years is certainly a matter of speculation. And I speculate on, you know, the last epilogue of the book is imagining a day in the life in 2028 and what having this kind of all-in-one device means. And so I think if everything goes right, meaning we do this the right way, and we prioritize user safety over growth and make sure everyone can have a good experience and make sure that this becomes a place that tries to safeguard against the stuff that infected the internet so irrevocably, I think we are looking at a technology or a set of technologies that is going to feel like the internet in the sense that you will say, remember how we had to do this before this thing came along? Now we're so used to having a supercomputer in our pocket and being able to get any answer to any question. What's going to happen with these devices is knowledge is going to transition into experience. So you'll be able to call up any experience that you can imagine based on the supercomputer in your pocket or on your face. So we are going from an age of information to an age of experience. That's going to be the real tectonic shift is what we think of now as the internet will certainly still exist. I mean, some people think that within 10 years, we won't have smartphones at all because it's just going to exist as like a processing pack for the wearable that you've got on. But we'll still have computers and we'll still go to the movies and we'll still do all these other things. But we will also have this tool that unlocks experiential freedom in a way that we've never had anything even remotely approaching before. Peter, thanks so much for joining us on Profiles. Thank you so much for having me on. This was fun. Peter Rubin, author of the new book, Future Presence, How Virtual Reality is Changing Human Connection, Intimacy, and the Limits of Ordinary Life. He's been speaking with Janae Cummings. I'm Aaron Kane. Thanks for listening. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash, The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.